You're listening to a Columbia Journalism Review podcast. On this episode, assistant editor Joel Mears speaks with Brooke Kroger, director of the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University and author of the book, Nellie Bly, Daredevil, Reporter, Feminist. At this past weekend's Joint Journalism Historians Conference, she previewed a database archive of undercover journalism that includes stories as far back as 1822. She is now working on a book about that project as well. Here's Joel and Brooke. Welcome, Brooke. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You previewed your new database or your upcoming database this weekend, and I was wondering if you could tell us what the database tells journalists and how you came to put it together. It is an outgrowth of a manuscript I'm just sending off to the publisher in days, thank you, after three and a half long years. Uh, It's a book about undercover reporting, uh, to be called uh, Undercover Reporting, The Truth About Deception. Uh, And it looks at the practice going back to 1822, the earliest example, a big expose of the Masons, who were very important at the time. Um, And in collecting this material, what I realized was, uh, well, let me backtrack to say that Mm -hmm. I did a biography of Nellie Bly about 20 years ago that was, of course, um, a a massive effort of excavation because there really was virtually no available material about her. So now, of course, 20 years later, so much is online and so much of the historical record is online and even historical newspapers are online, especially if you work at, have the privilege of working at a university and have access to so many of the uh, proprietary databases, which I do. But still, uh, when it comes to newspapers, much, much, much is not still not available. So I found myself back with that same problem again. And in the case of Nellie Bly, I created, you know, 100 pages of endnotes so that no one would ever have to do what I did again <laughs> and could actually extract this material with more ease. You still have to go get it, but at least you know where to find it because uh, that was not the case when I did Nellie. So this time I used a similar method of trying to find everything I could. Um, historians, textbooks tend to be extremely vague on citations of this material, like you'll find in, you know, a wonderful book like Silas Bent's 1936 or whatever year it is, uh, Newspaper Crusaders, that he'll mention this you know, fabulous uh, Chicago Times uh, madhouse expose, very much like Nellie's, but in the 1930s. And of course, he doesn't say when. So I will like go to small newspapers in the area that might write about it. You can do that through something like newspaperarchive.com. And then that'll get you within two weeks, so then you can call up the microfilm for the month, and then you can go through it page by page. And guess what? These are always on the front page, so at least you're saved, you know, ferreting around in the back of a paper in Agate or something. But uh, it's, you know, it's big work. And so after you've done something like that, and you find out, you know, when I first started this, I thought, oh, gosh, there'll be about 300 examples because this is such a discrete cohort of material. It's so hard to do. The investigations are long and expensive. And then, of course, there are many more than that. But uh, it's, it's how been many? wonderful fun. I'm curious as to how many examples there actually are that you came across. Um, I have, I think, about something in the neighborhood of four or 500. Wow. And this is you know, not including uh, the, the silly ones uh, or the fun ones. It doesn't include you know, restaurant reviewers or you know, sort of consumerist uh, local exposés of that nature. Mm-hmm. These, these have to meet criteria. And the criteria is loose, but it includes 
major prizes, major major place in the cultural conversation, major controversy, best-selling book, uh, widely reviewed, or having major impact in terms of legislation or arrests or uh, discernible change, reform, those sorts of things. So you, you have to be able to trace the event to some sort of outcome. But there are lots more than you think, and there's lots more than people know. So that's been a lot of fun. And when a user of this database clicks on, for example, the Chicago expose of the Madhouses and delves into that part of the database, what are they going to see? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, you know, we're going to get permission to use all of these, which is why I can't release it yet, because we're in the process of doing that. So you would see a, an icon that would show you the cover. You can open every single page of every single story, which is dated and cited in many cases for the very first known time, you will get an excerpt, a short excerpt. You will get the full PDF of the page itself. Often, if there are links, we'll do the links. I mean, if Google Books has done it as a reprint, you know, we'll certainly use that instead just to make it as visible as possible. Um, You will get any ancillary material about it that Let's say, you know, if it's books, it would be reviews of the books that were contemporaneous or controversy. Uh, In the case of something like Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin, there's an entire body of academic literature that's grown up around that. So all that, the most salient material will be there um, to link to. And, uh, you know, my um, anticipation is that I will be loading this database into my dotage. Oh, wow. So, so that's, completely that, that's what I think I'm going to be doing. <laughs> completely exhaustive then. Um, uh, well, you know, at this point, I, I get, it's selective because mm. we've been loading from the book, and the book only uses really the most, you know, elite examples uh, in each case. I mean, I just, they're not 400 examples in the book. Mm-hmm. But everything I've collected will ultimately get in there, and then I hope more will come. And I really want very much to internationalize it. I mean, at this point, there are just a few really seminal international examples that kind of couldn't be ignored, uh, Gunther Walroth, other people like that. But uh, they're, they've, they're given very, very short shrift. So I'm hoping that the database will be the opportunity for you know, other nations to come forward with their oeuvre, which I think would be very exciting. And what's the most elaborate example of a sting or piece of undercover journalism that you've come across? Uh, well, the most elaborate, I think, has to be... Um, I mean, some of these Nazi ones are pretty good. We don't remember them. And then, of course, there's undercover with the Ku Klux Klan for 18 months and things like that. But the Chicago Sun-Times Mirage probably stands as uh, the most inventive, I would have to say. And I think maybe the longest series, because it's 25 parts, which is long. And by the way, we're going to have all 25 parts. What time period was that over the 25 uh, parts? Over about a month. Okay, wow. In um, 78, early in 78. I get the feeling that you kind of like this kind of journalism. The book is very much an unabashed argument for uh, the value of this journalism and um, for an end to its uh, being maligned. So yes, I would say I, I very much take that position. The book is an argument for. What is the value of this kind of journalism? Uh, there's value on several levels. It brings attention to important issues. It makes the significant interesting uh, when it's done well, it is usually done in combination with, uh, you know, documentary investigation, other ways of pulling out material, and then you add this as almost a kind of theater that brings attention to the material. We're seeing that right now, how, how that can happen. 
if it's done well, and it has to be done under a lot of constraints and controls, uh, usually at the highest level of an organization, it's how it should be done. Mm. What do you say then to those who are slightly more old school and would say that there is no way that this kind of practice should be used in journalism because we're truth tellers in a sense and this undermines credibility of the journalist who's trying to tell that truth? I would say I certainly respect that opinion, but I would uh, disagree with it because, and I, you know, I hope the book through this just this avalanche of evidence persuades people otherwise. That would be what I would say. Do you think that there is a a set of perhaps standards or criteria that need to be met if this kind of journalism is going to be used? Absolutely. You're probably familiar with, uh, I think it's Bob Steele's list. Yes, his list list is excellent. He's a hero in the book because Mm. he leaves the door open for it. I mean, you'll notice he's very open to it under controlled conditions, and controlled conditions are really important. It's something, you know, we're seeing in this current episode right now that those haven't necessarily all been uh, adhered to. Well, and anyway, we're, we're talking ahead. about the James O'Keefe. We're talking uh, about the James O'Keefe story. And what's interesting in this latest one that's getting so much attention, um, I, was, I, I found myself comparing it to a December 2010 release of another advocacy video uh, by the Humane Society of uh, pig gestation crates in Virginia at the Smithfield plant. Mm-hmm pork processing, Uh, very, very produced music, you know, beautifully produced video on their website, which they did not do in conjunction with the mainstream outlet, which they often do, but a very, very different approach in that they went to Smithfield first to ask if they wanted to do a joint news conference. Mm -hmm. They produce uh, scientific reports. They make available lots of the raw video they did not in the video, in the video it only says undercover at Smithfields at one point where they're showing this, you know, perfectly distressing video of pigs being thrown around with open sores and in these tiny little crates where they spend their entire lives. And the video does not look like lapel pin video. It really looks, you know, quite produced. So I asked, I said, you know, how did, how do you get the footage? Um, their investigators go undercover as workers they use their own names. They omit that they have an association with the Humane Society, which does not meet general journalistic standards right now, mm. uh, because that involves an untruth. Um, they, anyway, in this case, so they were able to do it with handheld cameras too, because apparently there, these things are so automated, there are no human beings around for long stretches of time. Okay. So it was actually possible, you know, not to just to have to use the hidden camera. And you were seeing similarities between this case and the O'Keefe case? Well, the question that comes to me as interesting in this regard and columnists are writing about right now is whether it's appropriate for mainstream organizations to appropriate video or reports from advocacy groups that have a very, very, very clear point of view. Mm. And, you know, what, where's the vetting? How do you decide the efficacy of what you're looking at? What was the editorial process? I mean, all those questions come up. And what is driving the decision to introduce them other than reader appeal, which is something that Ed Wasserman said today in his column in the Miami Herald. I think the provenance is less important than the journalistic method and whether you can verify what method was used. 
I think it's very hard for people to separate their own political feelings or their own humanitarian feelings. My colleague Jay Rosens uses the term culture war in this case. And he and I were having this discussion. I was saying, well, what, you know, how, how is what the Humane Society does not a, another kind of culture war? The difference is that everybody agrees with them, except perhaps the poor people at Smithfield or those involved in the agribusiness who engage in these practices. Do you see someone like James O'Keefe as a journalist? What I'm saying to you is it doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is what material is produced, how it's verified, if the editing is unskewed, if there are ways to verify what you're looking at, which you know does not seem to be entirely the case in this instance, mm-hmm. though you know I think there's still, I mean, as everyone seems to have indicated, there were some problematic things said. But just thinking of it simply as, from a standpoint of method or you know what you would accept, in these days, it seems to me the questions you have to ask are questions not of provenance but of method and establishing a set of standards that you would adhere to in every case that aren't just about reader appeal. Uh, Brooke Kroger, thank you very much for You're your time You're very today. welcome. And good luck with the book and looking forward to seeing the database. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been a Columbia Journalism Review podcast produced by Lauren Kirchner. Theme music by Tim Hoyt. Visit CJR.org for fresh media criticism and behind-the-scenes stories every day, and to subscribe to the prize-winning magazine now in its 50th year, the Columbia Journalism Review at CJR.org. Strong press, strong democracy.